Well, good afternoon. It is 12.02, so it's officially the afternoon, so I can say that. How's everybody? Good. 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 All right. Well, we are trucking right along. We're going to dive in, and we're going to pray first. Come on, Helen. How are you? Good, good, good. Um, we got a spot here. There's Bibles in the cabinets. We found out. You can find all kind of interesting stuff opening cabinets at churches. Um, let's, uh, let's pray, if we could, before we get started. Thank you, God, once again for the opportunity to come together, to be together, both in person and virtually online and on our podcast, and dive into your word for us as we are looking at Galatians and Romans and getting some pretty heady stuff. Um, help us to find the heart of it all that draws us closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, we are going to spend a, a good chunk of time today um getting real heady um galatians and romans is uh is some pretty heady stuff and uh we're, we're a lot of theology so i just want to give you a, a heads up and as louisa uh remarked when i said we were going to talk about galatians and romans in an hour she was kind of like what and it's true because i spent a whole semester on galatians and you can probably spend a whole year on romans and still have uh, stones to unturn, but this is our task and what we're going to do. So we're going to jump right in. If you want to go ahead and turn to the p- part of Galatians, um, always good as we've talked about to know a little bit about the place and the people that these letters are being written to. So one thing that's important to, to realize is that Galatia was not like a city. Uh, it was more of a region. Um, we feel pretty certain it was a single church that Paul was writing into, but whereas most of the other letters are written to a church in a city, this was a church that was uh, part of a larger region. So there it is right there. Um, of course, down here you've got Jerusalem and all this, and we talk about how Paul, Paul's mission work really focused on sort of a westward move. And so um, this is one of the churches that he worked with. Not quite known for sure when it was written, but it was roughly in the mid-50s, first century, uh, we think. Um, As we found with 2 Corinthians last week, uh, the tone of 2 Corinthians is the same as Galatians, not because they are similar situations or not because they were related situations, but just because um, Paul is in, in, in Galatians is really having to defend himself. We'll talk about why in a second. Um, but Paul was an argumentative and angry defender, <laughs> um, and we'll see some of that. Um, this uh, scholar Brown uh, remarked one time that anger has caused Paul to say what he really thinks. Hey, Bridge. Um, so, so this is this is often referred to as the most Pauline of Paul's letters. Um, he's he's not holding back. He's not trying to. Th- thread the needle. He is being very intentional and direct about what it is that he is saying because he's ticked. Um, and we'll get to why in a second. Pauline is just a word that some biblical scholars use to refer to the group of letters Pauline. Yeah, it's like just like an adjective. Just like an adjective, Pauline. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, I've never thought about that before. Also like Second Corinthians, Paul uh, uh, is dealing with a similar situation that he dealt with in that letter, which is he's running into 
uh, these churches that he has relationships with, that while he's not there, because he's definitely not there more than he is there, um, there are are others that are coming in and are wielding influence on sort of how things are operating and going, and we'll get to a little bit about that. Paul is pushing back hard on those folks and what they're doing, and mostly the people in this church who are allowing themselves to be, as he would probably call it, duped. Okay. Um, Galatia, that region we looked at before, was a pagan land. Uh, Paul had been to this church. Um, as we as we know that he was very very focused on the the non Jewish world, the Gentile world, and expanding the church there. So this was sort of his dream, right? Galatia represented sort of a fertile area of people who had no conception of the Jewish faith, um, but were he thought ripe candidates to hear the message of Jesus. So, more specific, sometime after his visit there, um, others came in, uh, w- perhaps Christians of Jewish origin, they surmise that because of what they sort of were doing, had come and they, they had preached that the, the importance of circumcision. That it was important for, uh, for, for Christians to have those ties to the Jewish Torah, of circumcision, celebrating Jewish uh, festivals and feasts. Um, and if you think back a couple of weeks ago to when we talked about Acts, we talked about, was it uh, 17, that Jerusalem council? Was it 19? It was 17 or 19. Uh, was it 15? It was one of those chapters in there where they had the Jerusalem council. And the big, big question was, do you have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian? Paul was very much on the side of no. Um, and that's the way they went. But, but this was a sore spot. For Paul, he had fought that battle once. He was understandably frustrated that he was having to still fight that uh, after that had been done. Um, so he was angry at these people who had come in and sort of spread what he thought was this false gospel. You got to be circumcised. You got to celebrate the Jewish feast. He was angry at them. He was equally angry, and perhaps even more angry, at the Galatians who were allowing themselves to be taken like this. So that's the, that's the backdrop that you need to understand about uh, Galatians when you read it. It's just an angry letter. He's defending himself. Um, he's trying to defend his credentials, and he's trying to correct this, what he considers a faulty understanding about you got to sort of follow the Jewish laws and all that. So um, we get here in the, the letter. Uh, two, two, two main purposes of this letter, to defend himself and to show that he is, in fact, a true disciple, and also to reiterate the Christian faith more or less replaces the work of the Torah, including circumcision. And they, are not, they do not have to be bound to those things anymore. So that, that's kind of what he's hoping to accomplish in this letter. Okay? Um, Paul has come a long way. <laughs> from his days when he was Saul and was, in fact, uh, vehemently enforcing those things. And now he was telling people they didn't need to do it. So in our normal outline of the letter we look at, one of the really interesting things about this letter is it's lacking what? Remember we talked about the form of a typical Pauline letter? You kind of start things off and then you thank, give a lot of thanksgiving and thankful for this and thankful for that. He doesn't mess with that in Galatians. He cuts to the chase. When you, when you are angry, you don't always feel as grateful or thankful, I guess. 
So, um, we'll get to justification by faith, but that is something that comes very clear in here and also was reiterated in Romans. But then we are justified by faith as opposed to works or the law or those kinds of things. So, this is again stuff that I mean, I'm looking around this room here, we got some good reformed thinkers and theologians, good longtime Presbyterians. Um, but but basically, this is coming from the stuff we're studying today. This is where it started. So, so Paul's biographical defense. If you, I can't remember who I was, who who, who presented it that way. Um, Paul had heard of those preaching this different gospel. He's upset the Galatians are being duped by it. Um, so he uses a rhetorical pattern of a courtroom to defend himself, revealed to him not by humans but by Jesus. So, if you will, just sort of look. Um, at the letter, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle sent by sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom will be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Space. Do you see a space? It's almost, it's almost like the editor, if you have a Bible has space, it's almost like the editor was drawing attention to what is not there, which is what again? Right. So after the pleasantries are exchanged, what does he say in the next verse? What the heck are you doing? That's a great translation. I have. He used the word here. I marvel that you are turning away so soon. That's a pretty soft. That's very. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I marvel. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, the NRSV is. I'm astonished. Anybody have another one? I'm surprised. I'm surprised. What was the one, Louisa? Mine's astonished. Yeah. Yeah. Mine okay. Too. Yeah. I want to get. Bible. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, I think I think the best translation, honestly, is probably, if if not the direct great Greek translation, certainly within the with reading between the lines of what the heck are you doing? So I think that's great. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the name of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so that's, that's basically what he's going like that. Um, and then, like I said, he rhetorically creates this courtroom scene where he is on trial against these other people. And so it's, it's, it's this interesting thing. Paul just is so good with words that he can do this, um, of creating that in the writing so that people have heard. But the main thing that he is presenting in, in his defense is his story. He is recounting his story. Um, he acknowledges his past as a vigorous defender of Judaism and con- conversion, uh, recounts Jerusalem Conference where circumcision was decided not to be necessary. So he is walking these Galatians through, um, through his history and using himself and his past as exhibit A, if you will, of saying, look, um, if there was ever anyone who was going to tell you at one point in his life the importance of following Jewish custom and ritual and law, you're looking at him or you're reading him or whatever, right? And because this is what I did, okay? 
had a, had a conversion experience. And then, by the way, we had this Jerusalem conference where we dealt with that and determined it wasn't necessary. So throughout a good chunk of the letter, he is using his story um, as, as a definitive thing. And what's interesting is he kind of flirts with lifting himself up, but then saying that he's not setting himself up as like the primo example that everybody should follow. But you ought to hear my story. So it's sort of this back and forth a little bit that, that, that Paul goes through. He's just real sensitive about not over-promoting himself, but recognizing that his story is very applicable to the dialogue that they're having. So what he dives into is what we call, what we now know as justification by faith. Paul describes why circumcision is no longer necessary for justification by faith. And, and the word justification, just so that we're all kind of operating on the same thing, a good way to understand that, the word means to be set right. That's what the word literally means. To justify something is to set right. So if you are, I forget what, in a construction sense, but I know that there's sometimes when you talk about something getting justified, it's to maybe make it square or level or something like that. Um, What's that now? The printed word. This is justified. Oh, there you go. Yeah, you're right. Justified. Lined up. Justified left, justified right. There you go. That's a good example. Right. In line. All right. So in a theological sense, to be set right, to be in line with God. That's what justification is. And again, it's faith in Christ that gets us at. That's what he's going to say. So core of this argument, turn to chapter 2, verse 16. He's still telling his story. We'll begin at verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. There it is right there. That's the summary statement of Galatians, and one might say the summary of Paul's entire theology. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, and not by doing the works of the law, because no one will be justified by the works of the law. But if, in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? He answers his own rhetorical question, certainly not. But if I build up again the very thing that I, the things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then we get, uh, just skipping down real quick, because it's just another verse down, you get a space. So they think that Galatians probably was pieced together a little bit like Second Corinthians was. So what do you get there in, uh, in verse 3? Or chapter 3, verse 1, rather. You stupid Galatians. I got foolish. Anybody else got another word? Yeah, foolish. Who has bewitched you? Right. So he's railing into him again. All right. I see that he calls Peter Cephas. I was wondering if that was derogatory. Hmm. Yep. Cephas. Cephas, yeah. I don't know... Um, that's not the, game, the name that Jesus gave going mm-hmm. to his Jewish roots. I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't know why he refers to him in, in, that, in that name. 
when I read it, I didn't even think that was Peter. I just yeah. thought it was somebody yeah. else who was talking about yep. it. Trying to see if there's anything well, in my notes yeah, about it. Yeah, I've got a note, uh, Helen, that says Cephas was the Aramaic equivalent of Peter. Mm-hmm. So I don't quite understand that, but yeah, I don't know. Local I don't know why he didn't refer to him as Peter. Local language, <coughs> maybe. maybe. Or I'm not, maybe he was just being derogatory. Oh, <laughs> and not referring to him as Jesus changed his name to. Peter. Okay, yeah. okay. Could be. Could be. Since you've thrown the light on it, that this is all anger. Could be that maybe uh, maybe Peter was, for some reason, in that region known as Cephas mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. more than Peter. Um, but that is an interesting uh, catch there. Thanks for drawing attention to that. Back to our theology lesson. Um, So again, for Jews, justification comes through the observance of the law, following the Torah, circumcision, all those kinds of things. But for Christians, that has changed. Justification comes through faith faith in Jesus. Which again, we all know. It's pretty, but this is this is where our thinking has come from. Back to this dialogue, among others. So again, following in that courtroom metaphor. Paul, in his defense, presents six, six arguments to make this case about justification by faith in Jesus Christ. Um, number one, we find at the beginning of chapter 3 that we just delved into quickly there, Paul's gospel worked before the newcomers came, so what's, why should anything need to change? All right. So the classic, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. Uh, later on in that chapter... He uses uh, Abraham's circumcision. This is interesting. He actually uses Abraham's circumcision as a defense because when Abraham was circumcised and when he received the promise, think back to our Old Testament class, how broad was the casting of that blessing? To all all the nations. Right. So so there's there's this sense that the will of God and the extent of God reaches beyond a particular group of people in a particular faith, it's bigger than that. So what's interesting, of course, is that Paul, this is a good lawyer, right? Um, Paul uses uh, a, a, a beloved Jewish figure and his circumcision, nonetheless, to make the case that it's above and beyond the Torah and the law and circumcision, which is pretty creative and handy. Later in the third chapter, um, he talks about uh, the, the fact that the law came hundreds of years after the Abraham. It was sort of the tie-over. It was only the temporary custodian until Christ came. If you look at um, chapter 3, verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith will be revealed. Notice the word that he uses there, imprisoned. So it's a sense that the law served a purpose. But it was not maybe a des- it was not the most desirable one. We were kind of held captive by it. Okay, um, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our. The NRSV has disciplinarian. Uh, what other translations do y'all have in verse twenty four? Mine has tutor. Tutor. 
tutor. Schoolmaster. Schoolmaster. Okay. Custodian. Right. Custodian. Yep. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian, schoolmaster, tutor, custodian, until Christ came so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, custodian, schoolmaster, tutor. <laughs> For in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. All right? So, um, the, the, the actual Greek here, the word means something like a babysitter. So a babysitter, of course, comes over, takes care of the kids while parent or parents go off, have, you know, do their thing. But eventually, the hope and intention is that the parent or parents come back, right? Um, so it, like, a, like, a, like a temporary custodian, temporary watcher over, all these kinds of things. Uh, schoolmaster tutor really gets at the, um, the part of that that is about sort of educating or nurturing or that kind of thing. But the real thrust of this word is a watcher over, a temporary watcher over, which is not a real word. I just made it up. All right. So um, if you've always wondered why schoolmaster, tutor, disciplinarian, custodian, it's kind of weird. But the real word is getting at this babysitter almost, honestly. Okay. Um, and then we get, by the way, let's see. Yeah, then we get this wonderful thing. So metaphor of slavery, uh, that we were formerly enslaved to the law. Um, we were bound to the law. Kind of gets to that imprisoned thing that he mentioned there in verse 23. But now that's changed. We're no longer into that. And that baptism is sort of a sign of the releasing of that dominion over us. Uh, that responsibility we have to like that. And then we get this really powerful statement in 328, um, which is um, appropriate here and appropriate in a lot of other situations. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. So all of the barriers or the lines that we draw, the walls we build, um, to separate, to delineate, are gone. Um, there is no, I mean, nobody's in, nobody's out, everybody's in kind of a thing, right? And you, you play around with this. I mean, it's 2019, Jew or Greek, slave or free, those don't really ring true. Male or female, that's a pretty appropriate conversation for a day and time. But you can think about what is our Jew or Greek for today? What is our slave or free for today? Actually, some would say, and probably right, that slave or free is still very appropriate in today. New Jim Crow. So, anyway, I, I, I um, that that that's just kind of what he's getting at, and that's what he's using here to talk about um, is the the way that freedom from the things that abound us, from the disciplinarian babysitter, from the divisions. Uh, that those are gone, and it's all through justification by faith in Christ. Okay? Um, an interesting other argument that he puts in there is he says, so wh- what, wh- why are you getting on me? <laughs> um, we've, we've had a good thing going. Why are, you, why are you coming at me this way now? Or why are you disappointing me this way? Um, so he's kind of putting a bit of a guilt trip on them. Um, so, 
and then he, he talks about uh, others uh, that he has come upon who have gotten this wrong as well. Um, you know, he mentions, goes back again to Old Testament, Hagar, the slave representing justification through law, Sarah, free representing justification through faith, sort of like he did with Abraham and the all nations being blessed. He's using um, these, these real core Jewish stories as a way of arguing his, his case. Um, they would have been familiar with the narrative and and this would be a, a way of symbolically sort of uh, making his pitch about what he thinks. So he is very troubled by, by this development in this community. And he is pulling out all the stops and trying to right the ship, if you will. Okay? Um, he, he talks again in the head. He talks about the fact that if you were going to put all your eggs in the basket of, 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 of justification by the law and Torah and circumcision, um, then, then, then you got to go all in, right? There's 613 laws, so get busy, okay? Um, if, you're going to, if, that's, if, that's where you, if that's where you're going to stake your flag, then you've got to own it all. Um, and if you do that, you are not only being foolish about what it is that saves you, but you're rejecting the justification through Christ. And the whole reason that Jesus came in the first place is what he's kind of saying here. Um, and he just, he just goes on in here of, of kind of what happens when, uh, when, when people live by the Spirit, signs of those who don't do it, uh, now, the works of the flesh, these are the signs that don't do it, are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I have warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he talks about, by contrast, and this is 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. So he's setting these two things. If you put all your eggs in the basket of a law, all right, it's going to lead you down this path um, that's not the way to go. But if you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ, love, joy, peace, I love self-control. I think that's interesting. I, I need to go look that up and see what that actually is. But those are the fruits of the Spirit. So, so he's, he's making the case here that more than just understanding justification by faith, he's wanting to show that when we do that, there is a practical rubber-meeting-the-road impact on our lives, one way or the other. Okay? Zip right through Galatians, I told you. So quick summary, Paul's angry when he wrote this letter. The main message he's trying to get across is the law is not necessary. Justification by faith through Jesus Christ is what it's about. He directly challenges the gospel that requires all Christians to be circumcised and follow the Torah, and it is the most Pauline of his letters. Um, so it, it, it kind of makes you wonder um, what would be the the... The justification by the law, Torah, circumcision of 2019 in, in the church today. I mean, what would be the what what things do we kind of beholden ourselves to at the expense of 
truly living by the Spirit. Um, I'm not suggesting we figure that out or anything, but um, but I don't know. That's just I always love to look for once we dig into the meat of what things meant back then. I always love to sort of talk about or think about uh, how it might apply to today. You're talking about things like the creeds. I don't know. I mean, we're just you know we're not stuck on. Law, law, Torah, circumcision in 2019, like they were back then. But what would be a parallel, perhaps? I don't know. Baptism. And, hmm? Baptism. Might be. Some people are stuck on that, but you have to be baptized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. Something to think about. Do I now? Are you thinking something more? I'm not thinking anything. I'm not. I'm, I'm not asking to give some answer, and I go, "That's the one. That's the right one." I'm, I'm just. This totally open ended, but. But I, I, but I, I do think it's just interesting of what, what things do we tend to get sidetracked on and maybe lose sight of what it is that we really need to be focused on as a church. So just chew on that. And if you want to talk about that over a cup of coffee later, just let me know. Well, there would be different segments of practicing the faith, like those that feel like you have to be born again or whatever that means. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's a good point. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's not across the board. Mm-hmm. Right. I like the way in verse 17 at the last chapter it says, From now on, let no one trouble me. <laughs> Give me a break. Yeah. Give me a break. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't. He ends angry. He ends a letter angry. Yeah, he really does. And, and you know, I, I when it's just black and white words on a piece of paper, it's hard to see. But, I mean, just in the privacy of your own home in front of the mirror, try reading uh, one, what's that, one, six? Yeah. Try and read that with an angry tone. If you were, if you were at, um, if you were at uh, uh, Montreat, um, and remember Casey reading Scripture, um, and, and sort of telling Scripture rather than reading Scripture, that being the whole thing, really embodying what it is that you're saying and not just rotely reading it, just imagine how Casey would have read one six and following. Probably would have been screaming at some part, right? So any other questions about Galatians? Alright, we're moving along. Right in Romans. Bye, British. Hey, uh, British. Where's uh is Lisa uh Presbyterian? Mercy. Mercy, thank you. Okay. All right. Swing by and check in on her. She had surgery today. All right. All right. Let me find Romans. There we go. Got to go back. Sorry, it's confusing. All right. Overview of Romans. Longest of all the New Testament letters. Um, it is also probably the most dense content-wise. Um, like sometimes eyes glazing over dense. You need to stay caffeinated when reading Romans. Not that it's boring, but it's just really dense. Uh, written a little later, perhaps in Galatians, um, it is considered as sort of his theological masterpiece. It is a comprehensive presentation of what he believes with great precision and clarity. Um, it is different than his other letters in that regard. They are theological and they are wonderful, but they are always the letters that we've read now and some of the other ones we'll read later are all letters he's writing to a particular church about particular issues. 
um, that he's had some kind of a relationship with. He's founded the church, he's visited the church, and so he, he does a lot of that. Romans is not that, it's different. Um, it is presented more as a comprehensive, well-thought-out theological essay or really dense sermon that I would hate for anyone to have to listen to um, rather than a true letter. Um, it is probably written to multiple churches in Rome because there were multiple churches in Rome. So, you, 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 again, it's not written to a specific church of audience that he's had a relationship with. He's kind of casting the net to the multiple faith communities in the large, huge city of Rome. He had never been there. He would go there eventually, but up to this point, he had never been there. He did not know anyone there. But he has a purpose in writing this letter that we'll get to. Um, he, in this letter, is, sounds more sympathetic to Jewish Christianity um, than he probably sounded or did sound in Galatians. He is aware, even though he's never been there and met the churches, he knows that there are a good number of Jewish Christians in those church communities. So he is not going to, not badmouth, uh, the, the Jewish Christian hybrid because he wouldn't do that. But he's not going to make the same case he was trying to make to those Galatians because they're off in Galatia. That's Gentile plus, right? But here, he can't, he doesn't want to bring the message because that would serve him no purpose and might even, you know, hurt him. Um, the reason that Paul wrote this letter as best as scholars is determined that he was asking for money. He was asking for support. And so what he wanted to do was he wanted to present... I mean, it's almost like writing for a grant where you present your treatise or whatever, you present your, you know, you bring out all the stops, you lay it all out, and what you're trying to do is to get some people to look at you and go, sounds like a good guy. Let's support him in his work. That's why he's writing this letter the way he is. That's why he's presenting his theology. That's why he's unpacking it all as he wants to show that he knows his stuff and is worthy of of support. Um, Romans has, of all of Paul's letters, probably has the greatest influence on our understanding of God, Jesus, uh, faith, justification by faith, grace, all of those kinds of things. And again, it's going to sound second hat to us, but it started with letters like Romans. Um, and we, what we have done is we've had a lot of biblical scholars and theologians over thousands of years, a couple thousands of years, who have dug into Romans and have, have written uh, commentaries and other sermon, preached sermons on it that have helped to formulate our understanding of what it means to be a Reformed Christian. Okay? All right, so, pretty basic outline. There's the Thanksgiving in this letter. Um, he deals in this letter with, with sin and how sin is the separating factor in our relationship with God and what it is that brings us back together. So we find justification by faith in Romans as well. Um, and that this, this, this good news is for Jew and Gentile alike. Okay. 
So, turn if you would. Um, every, every good doctoral paper or whatever has to have a thesis statement, a summary statement, or executive was an executive summary um, that sort of lays out in a sentence or two what it is that you're going to make the case for the rest of the, what's coming. So we get his executive summary, 16 and 17 of chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So notice what he does here is he, and again, he's keeping his audience in mind. I mean, Jesus was a Jew, and that was who Jesus came to be with and where things really got started, but then it spread out that. So he's holding both of those together. For it is in the righteousness of God is revealed through faith, for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. So he puts that up near the beginning, and then he's going to make the case for this the entire rest of the letter. Because again, there's no real personal correspondence. He doesn't know people there. Hey, check in on Gaius. Give him a high five for me. You know, there's none of that. Um, it's all about supporting this thesis. Um, Paul states up front what his letters could be about, setting the stage. I'm not ashamed, which is weird language for us because it's like, wait, why would you be ashamed of this? And you actually find a lot of people, you know, sort of using that as an understanding of it. Um, but but, but the, the actual Greek means more something like, I believe. Um, I'm not ashamed in the sense of this is what I believe. It's part of who I am. But he's not, he's not setting up this defensive whatever kind of a thing. Like, you know, some might be ashamed, but not me. He's not doing that. He's basically saying, I believe. Um, not reactionary like we found with Galatians. And the central theme of this letter is that righteousness has been revealed in Christ. Okay, so he's now going to, and again, this is a well-written paper, if you will. He's gonna, he's gonna, he's going to acknowledge and dig into the anti-thesis of that thesis, the argument again that one might say against that, so that he can then refute that. So that's what he does in the first four chapters here. Paul surveys sort of the, the predicament of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, is unable to justify existence before God. And so we get this apart from the law, which is what Gentiles say, under the law, the Jews would say that Paul makes a radical claim that real circumcision is of the heart, which is strange language. It's a strange image that a Jewish person would have been like, wait, what? There's like one thing that you circumcise is not your heart. So this would have been a different kind of thing. But what Paul is doing is he's using their understanding to try and uh, assuage them of a different way of viewing what it is that faith is about. Uh, he uses Abraham. God pronounced Abraham as righteous before circumcision. Um, and so he wants to lift that up as, as, as part of this, again, thinking that the law no longer has jurisdiction over us. Uh, chapter 3, Paul quotes various psalms to make the case of both Jew and, Je uh, Jew and Greek have fallen short and uh, gives sort of a twofold picture of Christ. 
um, as one the judge, we all fall short of God's glory. And then uh, we are justified by faith in Christ, not by the things that we do. He wants to hit that pretty hard. So now that he has sort of taken the opposite view and undone it, dismembered it, he wants to put something in place. This is a good paper, right? So justified by faith is what he's making the case of. So he goes back to that thesis that we found in chapter 1, the beginning of verse 5. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have attained access to this grace in which we stand. If you would turn to chapter 5. So he's returning to his thesis statement and is getting ready to um, unpack that to to defend it. Um, Take a look at verse 12 in chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, and so death spread to all because all have sinned, sin was indeed the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. So what's like the one prominent word you find in those uh, three verses? Sin. Sin, right. And, and when you say it, you've got you to really say it like the fun way, like, like, like the Southern Baptist preacher. You can't say sin, you've got to say sin. You've got to really dig into it. Sin. Yep. Um, so the word for sin used here in all these verses and other places is hamartia. And hamartia brings up kind of an archery image. Um, where... This is what happens. Missing the mark. We're trying to live, we're trying to hit here, the bullseye. And instead, almost, but not quite, and boy, we really blew it over here, right? So, uh, so that is Paul's understanding of sin, which I find helpful. Um, because I think if we think of sin, we can think of a whole host of things. Um, but, but we are not... Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we are not connecting where we need to. We're not hitting the mark. We're, we're missing it. Um, so it's an error of judgment, of effort maybe. It's not the fact um, that, 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 that we, are, uh, we were born to do this. Now, now Paul, Paul, I'm not saying that Paul would, I, mean, I want to get into like Garden of Eden stuff, Right. But, but, but what Paul is saying is that we're, our, our, our scope is off. Um, when, I, when I was at Camp Cheerio as a kid, true story, kind of embarrassing to say, when I was at Camp Cheerio as a kid, um, you, would, you would take different sporting things every day. You'd go to a, a class for an hour, like swimming and 
whatever, and I did riflery. And everybody shot five rounds of five for five days, Monday through Friday. So that's 125, right? You know, you're kind of, you know, this thing where you're kind of like laying down on the ground and you got your rifle and doing that. I never hit the paper. <laughs> never hit the paper. I tried different rifles. They checked the scopes. Um, oddly enough, oddly enough, when I was in seminary, this was when I was a kid, when I was in seminary, I went with some friends skeet shooting one day and I was knocking them out. The moving target. But, <laughs> but sitting there, you know, right there, I couldn't hit the paper. So I, I sinned greatly in Camp Cheerio, apparently. <laughs> Missing the mark, um, but I, I think I think that that's an interesting way and, and helpful to understand Paul's view of sin in this letter and beyond. Um, so, in this in these three chapters, which are critical to the case he's making, he uses three metaphors for our justification. One, uh, beginning at chapter six, um, he uses baptism. Chapter 6, verse 1, what are we then to say? Should we continue in missing the mark in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to missing the mark go on living it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism to his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might what? Right. So notice a parallel, and this I wrote my exegetical paper in seminary on this, so I, I dug into this like for months. So, but um, notice a parallel. What was the first thing that we did with Jesus? Baptized. Jesus was baptized as we were baptized. What's the next thing that happened? He was buried. Jesus was buried. We were buried. All right. Then Jesus was res- risen, and we what? He's very careful to say something specific. Walk in newness of life. So we've not we have not been resurrected in the same way that Jesus has been resurrected. So that's the one of the three that kind of diverges a little bit. Um, but 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 something has changed. We've walked in the newness of life because Christ has been raised, and it started from that act of baptism. So, so he's using this as a metaphor to kind of explain how our journey parallels with Christ and therefore justified by him. Um, Christ's resurrection is our newness of life. So that's the first one. Okay. Is, yes. Is this where we get, if we include that in uh, funeral service, do we get it from this? Idea? Include, include what in the funeral service? Oh, the, the idea of baptism. Oh, I would think so. Yeah, well, certainly. I, yeah, yeah. Baptized, you bring the service all the way back to the baptism. I would. I would say that probably is. I can't. I'm trying to think of where else that might come up, and it may be referred to. But this would certainly be part of it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah exactly, exactly. Because yeah, it's a good point. Because when we were celebrating the death of love, and we want to remind people that they've been baptized, because per this belief, that is the joining of Jesus and us in some kind of uh, relationship that continues in the life, not only in that moment of death, but in in the life that is to come. So it would, it's important for people to understand that that begins with baptism in that understanding. What's that now? Is that what Christmas is? I was raised Baptist. 
You're talking about uh, infant baptism versus infant baptism versus. Well, we're talking about you go back to the baptism, but if you're lifelong Presbyterian, you're not baptized. Is that what Christian is in the, in the Presbyterian church? Um, I mean, I mean, as a Baptist, you are literally baptized. Yes, right. So, different, different understandings of baptism. I see what you're saying between yeah. between Presbyterian and I would say Episcopal and other faiths and the yeah. baptism. One one tied to a decision of salvation, and one tied to welcoming welcoming people, welcoming uh, new ones into the community, the family of faith. Um, that's what we tell the confirmands about why we baptize babies or anyone that wants to uh, at any age. Yep. All right. Um, so the second metaphor we have is enslavement. And my thing has gone wonky again. So formerly we were slaves to this. We couldn't help <laughs> but be very bad shooters, archers. I'll use the word archers. Okay. Um, so then he says we're no longer slave to that. We're now slaves to righteousness. So the idea is a troubling metaphor, but again, it's reflective of the time that he was living in. But it's this understanding that, that uh, you're owned, your greater good is owned by something higher than you. That was sin, and now it's righteousness through Jesus Christ. And because of that, and the, what he's, the case he's wanting to make is that this is why you, you, you cannot live the same way you did before you connected with Jesus. Um, when you are with a different master, you're, you're, you're going to, your life is going to change. It has to change. So that's what he wants to talk about. So all of these are talking about how, not again, works righteousness, but about how our lives reflect the fact that we are justified or should reflect it. And then marriage, um, you know, the woman's bound to the husband until he dies. Sure, he's free to marry again. Again, we, we are getting, um, uh, you know, this is first century world here uh, where women did not have a lot of, uh, of autonomy unto themselves. They were defined and understood by who they were married to. So that's why it's the woman bound to the husband until he dies. So we have died to the law, and now we belong to Christ. So it's that, un- it's that somewhat older understanding of marriage uh, that when the woman is bound, now that sin has died, if you will, we can get a new spouse. <laughs> okay? Son of God made flesh and fleshing of God in Christ that we experience newness of life. Spirit of God rests within us. So all of these three images, baptism, enslavement, and marriage, are all about explaining how our lives change, literally, in how we live because of this justification by faith in Christ. So Paul discussed, so part of what Paul is reaching out to, again, knowing that there's a whole bunch of Jewish Christians that he's writing to in these churches in Rome. He's wanting to uplift the fact that the, the Jewish people still have a, a role and a place in the larger purpose of Christ, even though they haven't professed faith in Christ yet. Um, talks about the olive tree metaphor. Uh, the Gentiles are described or p- depicted here as sort of the wild olive branch that's grafted onto a cultivated olive trunk, which is Israel. 
So he is, he's getting real technical, if you will, in trying to help people understand how, how Jewish people and non-Jewish people can be part of the same family of faith. Um, trying to sort of picture that going there. The bottom line is that whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile, everyone is justified, equally justified in Christ. Picture of Christ that we have here in this part is sort of the author of faith. Jesus' fulfillment of the promise made to Israel is also available to the Gentile. He's just getting really technical because, again, he's wanting to show that he knows his stuff because that's what the letter is trying to accomplish. Um, life in the Christian community. So now we have the effects of the justification by Christ, the effects of the baptism metaphor, enslavement metaphor, marriage metaphor. Now that we are all justified by faith and we know that it is applicable to both Jew and non-Jew, all right, what does that look like? And so um, we get these different implications. So being good citizens, again, he knows his audience he's writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians predominantly in Rome where there's a, where there's a whole lot of desire to have good citizens, all right? Um, a church that's doing wild and crazy stuff in Galatia um, probably is not going to get as noticed or have as many eyes on them as a church in Rome, <laughs> all right? So he, and, and we found this before, where Paul really wants to put forth the idea that followers of Jesus can and should be good citizens of Rome. Now, if you read other writings this time, there would be people who would take huge issue with that. But Paul was trying to thread a little bit of a needle here um, in trying to align himself with the churches there to further the mission. And part of how he threads a needle in saying you can be good citizens, but also... Don't be of this world, but be transformed in the world. So we get that, that image as well, too. Um, that, that, that you can live here, you can live in Rome. Um, you know, it's this, it's this constant struggle, we feel it today, too, about sort of church and culture, right? When, when, when a church does something, is, is that kowtowing to culture, all right? And, and Paul is sort of trying to say that, you know, you can be a good citizen of the city of the of the empire, the Roman Empire, but just realize that your ultimate authority is with Christ, and that you are now bound to Him and transformed by Him. Genuine love for one another—that needs to be something. And then associate with the lowly, which is an interesting way of saying, you know, be be cognizant of those around you in need, which sounds like church in some ways, a lot of ways. Welcome the weekend faith, Christian nurture. So Paul was perhaps making the very first case for Sunday school and Bible studies. Didn't know it. Um, but but, but not, not to get into a situation where you're only allowing people in who believe certain things or of a certain maturity level, but that the door is open for everybody. And in fact, your role is with people who need a little bit of guidance on what it means to live a Christian life. Your responsibility is to help them do that. Okay? Work out any differences? I mean, he's just laying out sort of a church 101, if you will, here. Um, 
picture of Christ that we find here is deliver and rule of the Gentiles. All people can be justified through Christ. So he's writing this letter. Here's what it means to be. Here's here's what separates us from God. This sin, harmadia, missing the mark. Here's how Jesus helps us get over that. Justification by faith through him. Here are three metaphors about how that all happens. Baptism, enslavement, marriage. Here is an understanding of um, the implications of that in the community. And then finally, here's how a good church lives all of that out. So this is what I think, Roman churches. Will you support me? I mean, I'm not saying it's all about the money, but, but, but he's wanting to make a case so they could support him. And in doing so, we get this most amazing work that without this, our understanding of Jesus and God and faith and justification would be totally different. I don't know what it'd be, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be totally this, I don't think. Bye, Judith. So... All the stuff we've kind of gone over. Justification by faith is what it's written for. Significant influence on what we think and believe. And that's Romans in half an hour. <laughs> Which is crazy. So much more we could have dug into with that. Um, I was in a church in Cleveland, Ohio. And the minister, when I came, I was only there like, 14 months. Uh-huh. When I came, he was on the fifth sermons. Uh-huh. On the fifth chapter of Romans. When I left, he was to the 11th chapter. So he... <laughs> <laughs> 14 months. 14 months. Woo!